you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 44 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, good to see you as always. And you will recall last week we had an interview with Barry Creed, who's a partner in the firm of McDermott, Creed and Martin. And he had placed a post on LinkedIn, which I saw and I really liked. And I know Mm. you saw it then and you were really interested as well. He was identifying issues for solicitors' firms. It wasn't all negative. It was, you know, it was it was yeah. all kind of grown-up kind of reflections. In fact, in many ways, it was a very positive view. It was very, it was very, very, very positive. Yeah. Great yeah. interview with him. I yeah. enjoy that. Yeah. Well, today we are moving into different territory as we're going to talk to a solicitor who gave up running her own firm to become a barrister. Mm. And then she gave that up. And now, much more interestingly, she has become a novelist writing crime fiction. Andrea Carter's first novel, published in 2015, Death at Whitewater Church introduced her literary hero, solicitor Benedicta O'Keefe, who has been the subject of a number of books. Mark, and uh, I think Andrea is a mate of yours. Absolutely. We were in college together, yeah. I and can't wait to, for this interview. Yeah, I, I've, I love I've really this. enjoyed reading her books. I, I haven't read her books and that's why I'm just so curious to find out about this. Now, really looking forward to it. But first, we're going to take our visit down to the Decisis website, which you are in charge of, Mark, as all our loyal listeners will know. And in a departure of source today, we're just going to focus on one specific case, uh, which we think is worth being just the case to think I, about Yeah, I today. think this is an interesting one. Uh, it's a curious one, okay? Mm. This is the decision of Tomás Hennigan, or Heenahan, I presume it is. Heenahan, I think. Yeah, yeah. Heenahan, yeah. Uh, Minister for Housing. Uh, it's the lead decision is coming from the Chief Justice, Donald O'Donnell. And this is one where the Supreme Court had to consider legislation uh, whether it was constitutional or not, and in relation to the selection or the election of university Shannon seats to graduates of the NUI or Dublin University, which is obviously Trinity College. Um, and, you know, the, the, the system where there's a restriction on the entitlement to vote and certain third level yeah. education institutions are not entitled to participate in this. And all of that sort of stuff. So take yeah. it away, Mark. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the peculiar thing is it's actually the supplemental decision I wanted to look at this week because they'd already made the determination that the selection of um, of university senators was unconstitutional. But of course, once you make that de- declaration, you then need to decide, well, what is the effect of that? And so the question they had to answer, I mean, obviously the, in extreme circumstances that you might say, well, the existing university senators just automatically lose their seats, that obviously didn't happen. So the question was... Could the whole Oireachtas fall as a result of this if it's unconstitutional? But, well, the the real issue was what happens if there... What would have happened if there was an election called the day after this decision? Because there are six seats there for university graduates and would their election be unconstitutional? And so the Chief Justice really had to discuss, well, what is the power of the Supreme Court? Do they have the power effectively to say, right, this is unconstitutional, but not yet? And Sounds they, like St. Augustine. The, you know, the, 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 old, <laughs> the old question is, does the Supreme Court have the right to legislate? Are they simply interpreting the laws or do they have a role in, in making law? And so what he said in this case was, 
well, if we declare this unconstitutional today, the system isn't set up to allow for a constitutional election of university uh, of yes. university yeah, senate a very seats. good point, very so, interesting point. And yeah. I mean, I was curious about this because I mean, he looked back over a number of of different cases. But the one that it reminded me of, but that they didn't actually look at, was the case of Blake and the Attorney General, which, if you remember, is where they found that the old rent control was unconstitutional. And again, it, they could well have found, as soon as it was unconstitutional, suddenly that there would have been a free-for-all for landlords where they would suddenly be able to put rent up and there would have been tens of thousands of people made homeless. But in that case, they effectively allowed for legislation to be made. I and mean, there was another challenge to that, that legislation. But there was a kind of, there was a bit of a fudge. Whereas in this case... But there could only be a very brief interregnum between, yeah, you know, yeah. this 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 mm. being shot down as unconstitutional yeah. and then a replacement yeah. mechanism which mm. would be, yeah. you know, compliant with the yeah. constitution well, the being curious, put in place. Well, the curious thing here was that Tomas Hinehan, who brought the case, said there should just be a one-year stay. Both sides agreed that there should be a stay on the Declaration of Constitutionality. Tomas Hinehan said there should be a one-year stay. The Attorney General argued that they would need much more time in order to prepare basically a whole new electorate of university graduates, however they're going to, to do it. And the um, what, what, what the, the Supreme Court unanimously held was that one year was probably a bit short, but the length of time the AG was looking for was a bit long. So they basically said that the Declaration of Unconstitutionality will kick in on the 31st of May 2025. Okay, so what happens? There's a vote in the Doyle. And the government loses its majority, mm. collapses, they have to go to the country, there has to be an election within four weeks, okay? Yeah. There has to be a Shannon election within maybe six weeks of that. Yeah. I'm not sure what the actual I time period is. I think it's three months. Three months, three months. Okay, so there is there is a finite period. Yeah. So is the Supreme Court saying that, you know, okay, we're giving, we're, we're not striking this down for a but, year, but they know it is unconstitutional and they've made a finding that it's unconstitutional so are they going to give the green light to an election yeah, for seats I, that are contrary to the Constitution? Well, I, I think, think that's very, that's well, kind th of worrying, I really, think, well, a I little think bit. There's, there, there's a bit of real politic here that they've effectively said, you simply can't have a uh, have a vacuum whereby the existing elections is, is unconstitutional, but nothing new has come into place. So there's no huge injustice in the existing system, I think it's fair to say. Senators so it of is themselves, Augustinian, so isn't it? It is Augustinian. Make, make, but, make but me pure, I, but not yet. What I think is curious here is that because I think the last election was in early 2020, this declaration doesn't kick in until the 31st of May 2025. So the next election will be the last one under which the six Senate seats are limited to the graduates of the NUI and Dublin University. Mark, you better get your election papers in quick. I believe I, the reason you wanted to focus on this decision <laughs> so much is because you harbour a little ambition there, I, do you? I, 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 I'm making no announcement at this time. But how about yourself, Peter? I think uh, you're oh, a graduate no, of the National, uh, University, National of University of Ireland. Well, mm. we have we have a much bigger electorate than you guys in, in Trinity. That's anyway, okay. But, uh, yeah, but yeah, anyway, so I'm trusting you to write the fifth court I manifesto. I think you've heard it now, folks. Yeah, Vote yeah. number one, Tottenham. No, you I, know. Leonard's definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right, back shortly with our interview with Andy Carter, novelist, former barrister, former solicitor, and now very successful crime novelist. Silence in the fifth court. So it is a particular pleasure to welcome to the studio Andrea Carter, who is a well-known crime novelist, but 
previously practiced both as a solicitor and barrister. She, having graduated from Trinity, qualified in her hometown of Port Leash and then went all the way up to Carndonagh, the very northernmost town in the country, practiced in another practice, then started Carter and Co. solicitors for a number of years, then decided to come off the role of solicitors and become a barrister, practiced in the criminal courts for a number of years, and then in 2015 published Death at Whitewater Church. And that has started a whole series of novels set in the fictitious town of Glendara on the Inishowen Peninsula, where the heroine is a solicitor by the name of Benedicta O'Keefe. Andy, is there any similarity between Benedicta O'Keefe and your good self? Well, there might be, I suppose. I My first review said that I didn't have to move too far for my inspiration. My main character, my protagonist, my amateur sleuth, Benedict O'Keefe, or Ben O'Keefe, um, runs the most northerly solicitor's practice in the country. And coincidentally, I ran the most northerly solicitor's practice in the country. Somebody who isn't too far away from me pointed out that it would be last legal advice before Iceland and mm-hmm. that I should put it on my notepaper. So yes, I mean, certainly when I started writing, I was still practicing in Inishowen. I was still practicing as a solicitor and I started writing sort of as a way to keep me away from the wine bottle and to uh, sort of stop worrying, stop me worrying about work that I was during, doing during the day. At night, I would write and I would write these scenes that were sort of very close to what I was doing during the day, but with a character who could do things that I wouldn't have been able to get away with and say things to clients that I wouldn't have been able to get away with. So it was sort of cathartic. And those scenes have never seen the light of day because they were just too close to to what I was doing at the time. So in all your years of legal practice, you harboured literary ambitions? I didn't. I, I actually never thought that I would be published. And I certainly never thought that the scenes that I was writing while I was still practising would ever be published. Um, and they haven't been. You know, as I say, they were they were just too, too close to what I was do, doing during the day. But I, I continued doing it as a hobby. And it took me 10 years to, to write my first novel because I was practising both as a solicitor and then later as a barrister. When I sold my practice in Inishon and I moved to the bar, I had more more spare time and I had um, longer holidays and I started to take my writing, my sort of my hobby more seriously. And I started to do some courses and I started to enter some writing competitions and I had a small degree of success and it made me think, oh, maybe, maybe I, I might be able to have a short story published uh, but eventually, what I had started writing in Inishowen 10 years beforehand eventually turned into a crime novel. I'd finished it. Now, can I come back to the crime in a minute? But what I'd like to ask, you obviously have the benefit of a bit of distance from legal practice. Yes. And having been both a solicitor and a barrister, can you sum up for our listeners? First of all, I suppose if you had to go back to, to one, if, if the writing stopped working, is is do, 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 you, do you miss one more than the other or did one of them have advantages over the other or are you glad really at this stage to be out of the legal world? I mean, I practised law for, for a couple of decades really um, and so I feel that I have given uh, enough time probably to my legal practice both as a solicitor and as a barrister. Having said that, when I, and I love writing um, and I love the, the, the sort of solitary element of writing, um, having said that, when I drive through a town um, and the circuit court is sitting and there's a crowd of gowns um, on the steps and I can see um, the sort of adrenaline pumping, I can kind of feel it when I'm driving past. 
I feel a pang and I think, oh, yeah. Yeah, I kind of miss it. I do miss it sometimes. But you don't get the same thrill from literary festivals. I like literary festivals. Yeah, I do. Um, I have just come back from London where I did a festival called Capital Crime um, in a big hotel, which was beside St. Paul's. And it was great fun. You know, right. crime okay. writers are great crack. They really are. Can I, can I go back a little bit, Andy? Because yourself and Mark are old pals. So he we knows are. the whole story. I don't. And it's lovely to meet you. It's really lovely to meet you. And I can't wait to read the book. To my shame, I haven't read your books beforehand, but I will Shocking. after this show. Shocking. I can guarantee you. You started out, you're from Port Leash. You're from right in the heart of Ireland, okay? I am. And how, in the name of God, did you end up in Carndonagh? The last solicitor before, he, he was saying Iceland. I was thinking of Rockall or somewhere, you know? So <laughs> um, how did you end up there? Well, I, I mean, I'm from Ballyfin, actually. I'm from a, an even smaller place than Port Leash, a, a little village. Um, With the beautiful hotel, isn't it? And the, that's right. Yeah, it yeah, used to be a school, school actually. That's Patrician my, Brothers, my, yeah, 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 that's right. My dad yeah. used to teach in the school. And yes. I grew up in um, the uh, schoolhouse that's across from one of the lodges, uh, which is an old Victorian schoolhouse. It was built for the children of the workmen of the estate. So it was a a school, a primary school and residence attached. And my parents restored it when they came back from Zambia, room by room. And they still live there. So I grew up in Leash. Uh, I grew up in the most inland county in Ireland. So I grew up in the only county that doesn't touch a county which touches the sea. And then when I was looking for my first job as a fully qualified solicitor, um, I was called for an interview in Carndonagh. And I looked at the map and I thought, OK, that'll take about four hours, maybe. And of course, it took much longer and than that and the rest. So I moved from the most inland county in Ireland to a peninsula. So suddenly I was surrounded by sea on all three sides. So it was um, it was an adventure and, and, and you just slightly kinda, terrifying. You, you, you put your tent down and said, this is where I'm going to be and work away. And were you working on your own? Single firm? No, single, not no. not initially. Initially, I my first job was with uh, MD White and Company. So that was, um, I was working for Philip White, who was um, Michael White's brother. So that's the, their family practice. Um, Michael White? The Judge Michael White, yeah, that's okay, right, yes. Good. So I worked there for about two years and then I moved back to Dublin for about a year and returned and set up my own practice, uh, which I, I ran for seven or eight years, I think. And then you wanted to become a barrister. I did. I was I was running running my practice in, in Ishoan and then I had always wanted to be a barrister. That was my plan on leaving Trinity, but I couldn't afford to do it. I couldn't afford not to earn. So I qualified as a solicitor and I started earning. Okay, so you got away. yourself a job and then you were able to get into the profession. Exactly. So I financed my career at the bar from the proceeds of the sale of my practice as a solicitor. Okay. So Benedicta O'Keefe, you're, you're a heroine in this this book. How, how many books in the series so far? Number six just came out during the summer. Death Rights is the sixth one. And you've knocked the, the legal practitioning on the head. Gone. You're I now have. a fully-fledged writer. Yes, I, I write full time. I, um, I left the bar in 2013. I took a year leave of absence to do a master's in creative writing. And... I think I had an agent, a literary agent at that point, and I'd had some degree of success. And I was, you know, hopeful that maybe I could make something out of my writing. Making a career out of it, I I don't think it had occurred to me at that point that I could do that. But I wanted to take a year out of the bar and have some structure on my year writing. So I did a master's. Um, And during that year, um, I got a book deal with a London publisher. Wow. That's so very I, quick, isn't it? It is. It's it, Well, I mean, having said that, I spent 10 years writing the first book. But when I decided to pursue it seriously, then I was I was pretty lucky, really. Yeah. Now, I think I got about 75 rejections when I was looking for an agent. 
But and once I had an agent... It's all about yeah. resilience, isn't Once I had it? an agent, I got a publisher quite quickly. Okay. And the Fellowship of Crime Writers. I mean, there's quite a few of you guys out there, there at the are. moment. There are. Yeah, there in are. Ireland, in Ireland, in particular. Ireland. Yeah. yeah. And we have... Um, I did an interview uh, for uh, BBC uh, Radio Ulster there uh, a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this, about Northern Irish writers and Southern writers. And actually there's a really good cross-border community of writers. So there are a number of very successful Northern Irish crime writers and there are a number of writers, there are a lot of um, Irish writers. Um, and But we mix really well together. We travel to festivals together and I was at a festival in Harrogate. There's a great crime fiction festival in Harrogate which is held in the Swan Hotel which is the hotel where um, Agatha Christie reappeared. I don't know if you know the story about Agatha Christie disappearing for 10 days and crashing her car. She turned up in the dining room of this hotel, the Swan Hotel in Harrogate. So they now run this. That's a holy place for you, crime writers. It's Mecca, you know, it's Mecca for crime writers. So they run this great crime fiction festival there. And I remember coming into the bar tent. I mean, if you're going to try and find Irish writers, where do you find them? You find them in the bar tent. So I came into the bar tent and there was a long table of crime writers. All of the Irish crime writers had found each other mm. and there were writers from Belfast and there were writers from Cork and there were, we were all mixed together and it was great. It was a lovely atmosphere. You described how you didn't want to go to the bar because of the financial insecurity when mm-hmm. you left college. Is it any more financially secure being a crime writer than it is being a barrister? And I suppose the answer isn't as obvious as it might sound. No, um, I knew you were going to ask me that. As soon as I mentioned the finance, I knew you'd ask me that. And actually, uh, because I went to the bar late, I, I was in my late 30s by the time I got to the bar. It was And because I chose to do crime, it was quite a struggle to make a living. So in fact, I make just as good a living as a writer as I did as a barrister, even right at the end when I left. And without going too much into the finances of it, I mean, when you're on your sixth book, as you Mm -hmm. said, do you find that there's a spike for each individual book and or or is there a sort of continuing royalty from the old... For me, yeah, for me, it's a kind of a rollover sort of effect or a roll on effect. Um, I, at a certain point, I earned out my advance, which meant that then I start getting paid royalties. And I have a publisher in the States and a publisher in the UK. And so I get separate checks or separate payments, royalty payments twice a year from from each. And also I do some I do some workshops. I do a little bit of teaching. Ireland is really good for paying writers to do events. So you can, you can, and also the Arts Council is, is great. You know, I, I, I apply for Arts Council bursaries. Is, is there still a tax advantage for, for literary works? There those? is, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I sent my first book in to see if I could get the artist's exemption um, and I got it. Um, and then I sent my second book in and they said, no, it's fine, you don't need to keep sending us books in, we'll post it back to you. And I said, oh no, just, you know, send it around the office and, you know, <laughs> read it. So Andy, if I can come back in there mm-hmm. again. So I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this next part of the conversation. As I said, sadly, I don't know your books, okay? So you're going to have to tell me about Benedicta O'Keefe. Like, what are we, who, who'd play her? If we're, you know, I'm sure uh, there's a movie no. deal in, in, in the offing or a Netflix series, but who, who are we talking about? Give me a, give me a visualisation. Well, she's, she, coincidentally, she's small and dark, um, but that's, that's as much as I can give you. I don't know who would play her. And every time I'm asked, I'm actually asked more often who would play Malloy, who is the kind of male lead Women tend to ask me at literary festivals, who do I see as playing Malloy? And I always say that I, I don't hugely physically describe my characters, um, even though I, I like to know what they look like myself. I tend to kind of cut 
pictures out of magazines and put them on the walls when I'm writing a particular character. I know in my head what, what they all look like, but I want my readers to imagine themselves and see the characters themselves. I think sometimes it sort of spoils things if you tell readers what the characters okay, look no, like. That's, that, that, that's fair enough. But will you tell us a standard plot? I mean, obviously your your background, it like it's based in the Inishone Peninsula. It is. Isn't it? Yeah, it okay. is. I start with place because landscape and setting is very important to me um, and very important to these books. These books couldn't be set anywhere else. Um, my my new contract, the, the book that I'm working on at the moment is a standalone and it's a completely new setting. But for all of these books, they're all set either in imagined or real locations in the Inishowen Peninsula, but always in the Inishowen Peninsula. So I start with a setting. I start with a particular location on the Inishowen Peninsula. And it doesn't necessarily have to be where I have dumped the body. It can be just a, a, a location that's significant to the plot. And then I, I go from there. But you will find that my books are reliable to the extent that you will have a, you can be guaranteed that you will have a body at the beginning. You will have an amateur sleuth, a limited cast of suspects and a solution at the end. Wow. I will guarantee you that. So they're sort of, I don't want to say they're formulaic, but they're very much inspired by the kind of golden age of mystery. It sounds very Agatha Christie-esque. They are. Yes. yes, absolutely. Although I would, and while I'm a huge fan of Agatha Christie, character is also very important to me. And place. In, so I would look at P.D. James for my inspiration, very much so. And Even though I'm a massive Agatha Christie As fan. well as the elements you've talked about, you also have a backstory. There's a sort of ongoing story of, yes. the, of, the, of the Benedictus family. Absolutely. And, and what happened in their past and... And ongoing yes. issues. So there's so while there's there's a separate mystery in each book, and you can read each book separately. You're sort of rewarded if you read them in order, because there's an ongoing story involving the protagonist and one, her backstory. One of, one of the things I liked about this one was I think would particularly appeal to any probate lawyers. Because <laughs> it's very rare that I get to read any novel that mentions Section One One Seven of the Succession Act. From our, you know, a reference to probate there. Oh my God! You, know. you, 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 you get it. You get in the legal rights share. You get in Section One One Seven. You get in revocation. It's all there. Oh God, Mark, it must be too much for you, was it? I mean, do remember I practiced in Donegal as a small town solicitor, so that was an area I practiced in. I practiced in probate. But, but you know? one of the things, in fact, this particular one, which I've just read, brings out is the sheer breadth of law that you need to be on top of oh, if you're yeah, a sole practitioner absolutely. because you're talking about going into the district court and representing people who are speeding. Uh, you're going to, to, to effectively take a deathbed will. There's all of yes, these kind of yes. issues which, you know, it, it must be very difficult to keep yes. on top of all these things. And I, I try and reflect that in, in the mm. book, actually, um, the breadth of, of knowledge that she's required to have as a sort of a GP, you know. But I do remember one, and I'm, I can't remember if I've put this in the book, probably haven't disclosed it, uh, but I certainly remember when I moved to Inishowen, first of all, obviously my experience was in the Midlands before I moved there. And when I set up my practice, I remember um, having a coffee with a colleague, a friend of mine, whose practice was Donegal and Derry. And uh, I said, he said, how's it going? You know, are, you, are the clients coming in the door? And I said, yeah, not too bad. I was, I was, although I was asked yesterday, would I, um, would I act for somebody in buying a boat? And I said, I hadn't a clue how to do it. And he said, what did you say? I presume you said you'd do it. And I said, no, I, I, I said I, I hadn't done it before. So I wouldn't. And he said, are you crazy? It pays really well. The next time somebody comes in 
asks you to buy a boat, just ring me. Say you'll do it and then ring me. So it happened. About a week later, somebody came in and asked me to act for them in buying a boat. So I rang this friend of mine up and went, right, help. I've just said yes. And he said, OK, have you got a pen and paper? Right, number one, there are 64 shares in a boat. Number two. And he just talked me through it. And I, I did it a lot then after that. That was my first kind of couple of months. So it does show what a learning curve it is yes. if you set up a practice on your own. You have to give it a own. lash. You know, you have to jump in sometimes. Absolute, you might not have all the answers, but you'll figure them out. But, and you've got good colleagues who can, who can help you. Yes, but you have good colleagues at the bar where you, you, you're running into people in the hallway and you're running into people, you can go and see somebody at their desk. If you're running a practice on your own, you very much need to cultivate friendships with other solicitors that yes. you can kind oh, no, of I can share. Imagine. Funnily enough, one of the points that our last guest, Barry Creed, was making uh, was that, first of all, it's very you, the split profession is very useful because you can draw on that expertise. Yes. But the other thing, and it comes across in your book, is the... The, the difficulty of recruiting good um, good administrative staff that, you know, you need the support. I mean, oh, you couldn't run the kind of firm you're describing there without somebody who's on top of all the no, paperwork, who's on top of all absolutely. the finances. And also the, the kind of blow-in element, element of it came to play there or came into play there because being somebody who hadn't grown up in Inishowen didn't know some of the local sensitivities. And so my employees were local and particularly my legal assistant. She was, uh, she's local and she was fantastic. And, she, and yes. I really needed her in terms of giving me advice. You, you, know? you mentioned there earlier that you have international publication. You have an agent in America mm-hmm. um, and obviously in Britain and you're going to all these festivals. How do your American readers, for example, how do they respond to Inishowen? They respond well. I mean, I when my first book came out, um, I spent a week in, my publishers are based in Florida for these books. And I spent a week in Florida. There was a big crime fiction festival called BoucherCon in a town called St. Petersburg in Florida. Um, and uh, I did some events in bookshops. And then I did this, this big crime fiction conference, um, they called it. And so I was on a number of different panels. And I think every Irish fan, every Irish-American fan spotted the Irish writer on the um, uh, schedule and and came. And so I had lots of conversations about people's ancestors. And so, uh, I mean, and and some people knew Inishowen and some people didn't and they didn't care just because it was Irish. They wanted to read books set in Ireland. But obviously, I there is quite a bit of editing involved. The books change in terms of language um, and in terms of. Uh, and do you do that editing? I my editors in the states do it and then consult me. Okay. They, they send me their edits and I get to say yes or no. And I, and I think some of your books have been translated to other languages. One has been translated into German, so I have I have a German publisher for the first book. And does that involve much consultation with the translator or no, do you just let, there, let there them wasn't any. Yeah, there wasn't any in that case, actually. There's far more consultation with the Americans than with the German. And have you loads of inspiration for future stories? I mean, the Inishown Peninsula, it never, it'll never disappoint. There'll well, always be a twist and a turn we'll that see. you can knock a plot out of. I mean, is that I, the way it is? I sort of don't want it to turn into Midsummer Murders, you know, and I am beginning to kind of ship people in to kill them. So well, if Maybe somebody Benedicta n- could get on a bus to Port Leash or to Ballyfin even. She goes to Dublin in this one, actually. Oh, wow. So you okay. will 
Okay, so big city. Yeah. Okay, wow. In fact, I think she travels to Norway in one as well. In book um, two, am I, I going to travels... recognise anybody when I read the book? Am oh I God, to, no! Your, your I, I used to be a lawyer. I'm very yeah. careful about that. <laughs> well, you know, am I going to say, oh, I spot that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Not a bit of it. No, no, no. no well, okay. well, I mean, all my all, all characters, fiction. all fiction, all my characters are um, an amalgamation of characteristics, both physical and uh, personality uh, of of people I know. You know, you you pick. You pick little, you cherry pick from people that you know. If you see you an do. interesting sort of personality tick, um, you use it. Yeah, no, great. And, and you know, I mean, the future, is there sort of, is it something that would translate onto the small screen or onto the big screen, do you think? Well, they're optioned. The books are under option um, or have been under option. Um, and so we'll see. Uh, they were optioned, the first three books were optioned back in 2017 and, you know, COVID obviously uh, put all of those plans, they were about to be made, uh, or so I was told, and that COVID put all of those plans into a bit of a coma. But okay, so it could happen. There's there's a revival happening. And just, just to ask you, is it set in contemporary Ireland? It is very much set it's in contemporary. the Ireland of now. Yes, although there people have said to me that the, the early books don't appear to be that contemporary. And I think it's probably because I started writing them sort of 10 years before they were published. Uh, so there's a, there's a feel, uh, uh, there's a lack of mobile phone content and internet content in the early ones. But uh, but yes, they, they're supposed to be um, contemporary. <laughs> okay. And can I ask you a final question? If you're, you know, crime writers, as you say, there's there's quite a population of you in mm. Ireland. I'm thinking of someone like John Connolly, who mm. I knew in a previous life yes. many, many moons ago, yes. who's gone on to yeah, massive, massive international oh, yeah, success. Yeah. And there are others. And you said mention P.D. James, mm. for example, as somebody that inspires you. Anybody else you want to, want to throw out there? Who's writing in the Irish context now? I suppose these are all your friends. You can't see, really say anything yet. Yeah. So maybe if that's I an unfair two, question. I'll, I'll have missed out five, you know, yeah, so yeah. I can't really do that. Is but, it always yeah. going to be crime, Andy? Is it? Could you uh, go into, could you write something else? Well, I, the, I, the book that I've, I've started writing at the moment, uh, or the, the book that I am writing at the moment, is I wasn't sure what it was going to be, but it does seem to be taking that similar turn. You, you inadvertently <laughs> so, killed somebody and now it's a murder yeah, novel. Is that? Absolutely. <laughs> As a, I, I was talking to somebody at the weekend and she was saying that um, she started uh, writing uh, a romance novel and her agent wasn't at all happy about the fact that she was writing a romance novel. And then she got 800, she's, she was on page eight and she'd killed off the heroine. So she realised that she wasn't really cut out for romance. And, and how long does it take you to write a novel? Um, well, as I say, the first one took me 10 years and then it's one a year since then because I have a, I have a contract and I have a deadline. So um, it's well, amazing what you'll do. They're not always met, are they? No, I do. <laughs> I, I always meet my deadlines. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that I took from from the legal profession into writing as a career. You know, deadlines are... are scare lawyers generally um, and they generally don't scare writers but they do scare me so it, and it's because I'm your, used to your working to a deadline you. they do well okay. I think they do anyway so they, Andy I, can we ask you about a book maybe we can do you want to do, you know our thing oh, yes, about a yeah. book and you know about uh, a movie do you have a, a book maybe beyond maybe your field or whatever something that might appeal to you yeah. that you'd like to recommend um, I Yes, uh, I read two books um, this summer, um, both with a, sort of, with a legal theme and both both of which I really liked. And one was Mark O'Connell's A Thread of Violence, which is about Mark, Malcolm MacArthur. I, I don't know if either, either yes, of you have read that. Yes, I've heard of that, yeah. Um, it's, uh, and it was, it was written after a series of he conversations. He did a series of interviews, yes. yeah, of course, yeah. He spent quite a lot of time with him and he spent time with him in his flat and he spoke to him on the phone and... 
So there was ongoing contact over a long period of time. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I expected it to be, I think, more exploitative. And I wasn't sure whether I would like it or not. And I really liked it. I thought it was very sensitively written and there's integrity there. And um, it's... Integrity in relation to MacArthur, or in the what? way that in the way that he approaches the whole project, yes, um, and he's very honest about Mark O'Connell is very honest about his own doubts about doing it at all and yes. his concerns and sure. you know, um, but I think what he produces is something that's that, that's very There's sensitively value written, of course, there's value okay. written it, it, in it definitely, and it's quite graceful the way he writes it. Okay, yeah. no, very interesting choice. Yeah, and what about a movie? Uh, well, I was going to go for a second book, oh, yeah, if that's course, all right. Do, because, please uh, do, please movie do. Movie-wise, I don't think I could come up with anything very original. I'd go down to 12 Angry Men or <laughs> The Pelican Brief or something. So I'm going to go for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. I don't oh. know if either of you have read that, yeah. but I would definitely recommend it. It's It came out in 1994. It's by John Berendt. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it properly, but it's set in Savannah, Georgia. And it's about the trial of an antique dealer for the murder of a, a male prostitute. And he was tried four times. There were four trials. But this book is as much about the atmosphere of the town and the characters. Uh, I mean, the back cover says it's a crazy quilt of oddballs, posers, snobs, sorceresses and outlaws. And that's okay. exactly what it is. Sounds like where I drink. But yeah. anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant. Right. It's really Fantas- funny. Fantastic, yeah. Andy. OK, so <clears throat> after all, thank you very much, Andrea Carter, for coming in. And uh, anybody who is interested can buy her latest novel, Death Rights, which is published by Constable and available in all good, probably all bookshops, in fact. Should be, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you very much. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. That's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guest, Andrea Carter, for coming in and talking to us about the world of crime writing. Gave up the bar, gave up being a solicitor and has had a wonderfully successful career as a crime writer. I haven't read the books yet, Mark, but I'm going to. She's an old mate of yours. And I do recommend the novels. I loved Death Rights is the, is the most recent one. Really? Okay, so so you, you've heard all about them, folks. It's brilliant. They're, they, they sound brilliant. I can't wait to pick one up and start reading one. So before we go, I would like to say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Moran, for all his assistance in putting this together. And also to the great Lee Brennan, who has covered sound and recorded this podcast and puts us all at our ease. Lee, fair play to you, top man. And so that's it, folks. So for me, Peter Leonard. Myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.